let's pray, and we're going to start or continue with the Puritans and look at more book lists. You need a book list, right? Everybody needs a big library. Spurgeon had 12,000 books in his library. Supposedly, he read a book every day. And the famous quote by Erasmus, I try to live by, he said, when I get a little money, I buy books. If I have some left over, I might buy some food. Okay, well, let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning for our time. Just to look at church history, be encouraged to know that they celebrated the Lord's resurrection, his death for them on the cross, that they did that every Lord's day. And the Puritans really bringing forth that truth of the gospel that had started with the Reformation. Thank you that that tradition continued into America and we can benefit from it today. Let us learn from these men and, and read the writings and be encouraged in our sanctification. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so here were the, the three historical references that I gave at the beginning of last class. Just wanted to look at those once again. The documentary you'll have to grab on their website, the Puritan documentary on the right. But it has some videos that, that overview the Puritan era, these different men. My favorite resource is Meet the Puritans book because it has these short little bios and then all their modern reprints. So if they have works that have been reprinted in the last hundred years or so, they're going to be there in this book, Meet the Puritans. So we looked at Baxter last week. I'm just going to fast forward and catch us up here. We looked at Brooks, Bunyan, lots to say on Bunyan. I had a lot of book recommendations on Bunyan, including Pilgrim's Progress. You have to read Pilgrim's Progress. I might do a class on that here someday. Where we go through Pilgrim's Progress and study the, the lessons learned there. Um, I mean, that's how much John Bunyan benefited us. There's even four Puritan paperbacks in that whole there's only about 60 Puritan paperbacks that they've selected, and four of them, maybe more, are John Bunyan. Jeremiah Burroughs, we looked at him, and I think we did Stephen Sharnock. We got Flavel. All right, Thomas Goodwin is, uh, is where we left off, I believe. Goodwin was a lot like John Owen, a massive writer of theological works and sermon publications. We went through some of his early life, how he entered college at 12. All these men, except for Bunyan, that I've covered went to Cambridge or Oxford. They had been taken over. Originally, these were Catholic schools. During the Civil War in England, they're taken over by the Puritans. And Puritans are appointed as heads of these colleges. But here's Goodwin even going in 1613, before it's Protestant. He's entering at 12, which is fairly early even for that day. And so Goodwin is chosen as a fellow. He stays on there. He becomes a preacher. And he had to leave... The, the church, the, the, these colleges have churches there. Today they're, they're not near as conservative as they used to be, but they have churches on campus for the students and the faculty. And you live on campus and go to the, the church that's associated with your college. And so he was pastor of Trinity Chapel there. And he had to leave because he was independent. Independent means not part of the Anglican system. He wanted to leave the Anglican church even before the parliament took over and beheaded the king and it was free to do that, he, he wanted to be independent. He thought each church should not have oversight from some sort of presbytery or archbishop, but it should be independent. And that was his conviction. He found that in scripture. And so he pretty much resigned so Richard Sibbs could, could take over, which was not a bad thing. He just felt like he should do that before they made a big fuss of it. He went to London. He, he preached there in independent congregations. 
He had to flee to Holland with a lot of the separatists, Puritans, who went to Holland. Many of those went on to America. He came back. He met some other independents there. Jeremiah Burroughs, who we've already talked about. William Bridge, who has a great little book on lifting up the downcast. So these were the five dissenting brethren at that assembly we talked about called the Westminster Assembly. And dissenting meaning they didn't agree with the Anglicans. Most of the people at the Westminster Assembly, most of those men were pastors in either the Anglican Church or the Scottish Presbyterian Church. And these five men said, we believe the church should be independent of a denomination. And they were the dissenting brethren, but they did get along with everyone else at the assembly. Uh, So I think we're up to maybe this slide here. I don't know. I was going pretty fast at the end of last class. So in 1658, remember Cromwell is the Lord protector of England when they don't have a king. When the Puritans in Parliament are basically ruling and they've made religious, you know, whatever your religious beliefs are, you have a freedom of religion within Christianity, of course. There were no atheists then. There were no Muslims in England at that time. Cromwell allows a preliminary synod of independence. So this is pretty big when it comes to freedom of religion and the Puritan movement especially. These men that we've already talked about, including John Owen, who also believed that the church should be independent and not part of the Anglican system and hierarchy, they met and they were allowed by Cromwell to draw up their own declaration, their own confession. So the Westminster Confession, they, they had a confession that was for the really the Anglican and, and Presbyterian churches. Presbyterian church today still uses that. That's their doctrinal statement. Later in 1689, the Reformed Baptists will have a confession. But the independent, we'll call them independent baby baptizers, the congregational churches, they didn't have a confession after Westminster. So they, they were allowed to put one together. It's very similar, very, very similar. It's called the Savoy confession or the Savoy Declaration. Goodwin is later banned from teaching at Oxford whenever the King Charles II comes into power. Remember, they ejected all these pastors from their pulpits. Well, that includes these learned men from the colleges. So by this time he was teaching in Oxford and he's kicked out there. He dies in 1679, buried in Bunhill Fields, which is where all the independents are buried. That's where Bunyan is buried. Some other men we've already talked about. I'm pretty sure that's where Spurgeon is buried as well. So all independents for a certain time had to be buried outside the, the city. 1655, the Great Plague hits. And many people are leaving. Goodwin is one of those pastors who stayed. He was faithful to his flock. He stayed in London. He took care of the people there. And unfortunately, the wind changed directions and burned down his house when they had this great fire. So a year of plague, then a great fire in London. And I'll back up here. His home was in danger of being burnt down. And the main issue is the books. You can't replace those. You can replace the home. These days, it's easier to replace books. Back then, it took a lot to build your own personal library. So the wind changed directions, burned down his friend's house instead of his, and as well as all the books he had moved over to his friend's house. So he thought, the fire's coming. I'll move it to my friend's house so my house doesn't burn. And then the wind changes direction, burns down his friend's house. 500 pounds. That's a lot of money back then. Goodwin's house was not burned down. There's the fire of London. Very famous. There's even a sermon I read by John Owen, another Puritan we'll talk about today. And he uses all of these things happening in their country to say how far they've fallen from the Lord. 
And he says, do you think that this plague that's happened this last year and this great fire of London has just come upon us for no reason? And he, he really preaches it and talks about the sin of the nation. It burned quite a bit of the downtown area there, which today is downtown. Back then it was the center there of the city. You can see in this painting all the people lined up along the river just trying to get away from the fire. Goodman preached a lot. He wrote a lot. He's got a couple of books in the series, the Puritan paperbacks, that I'd recommend. One is The Heart of Christ, and the other is Christ Set Forth as the Cause of Justification and as the Object of Justifying Faith. If you have read the recent book called Gentle and Lowly, pretty much the author, it's a modern book, the author takes these two and just puts it together and puts it back out to us in English which is a great way to make a lot of money as a solid author because you just go back to the Puritans, footnote all your quotes there, and explain them. And it's a great book because he's relying upon, I think, these works here by Goodwin. Uh, I hadn't read much Goodwin before Gentle and Lowly, sort of pointing me more in that direction. I'd heard of him, and so I asked for the last Christmas to get a, a large set of his works, the complete works of Thomas Goodwin which my family told my mom to buy that for me for Christmas, and she did. And so I've been able just to read some of his sermons in, in Romans. As I've been going through, I look to see what Puritans have preached on that passage. And I really enjoyed Goodwin. I've really uh, gotten a lot from his preaching. It's not a theological treatise, his preaching is not. It's very pointed, applicable, and it sounds like he's, he's speaking to people today. So there it is, the, the complete set there. It just came out a few years back in paperback, reprinted by Reformation Heritage Books, and then they put it in hardback. But you can see how prolific he was. This was not a man who just sort of preached twice a month or something. He, he was always teaching, always preaching, always turning that material into books. Let's talk about William Gurnall. And really, we, we talk about William Gurnall only because of one famous work. But he's worth talking about because of that. In 1644, he becomes the rector at the largest church in West Suffolk. Although Gurnall suffered from poor health, he managed to spend the next 35 years ministering to that same congregation. He married Sarah Mott, the daughter of Vicar Thomas Mott, in the year 1646. William and Sarah had at least 14 children. Although Gurnall was Puritan in doctrine, He's one of these men who chose to remain in the church. So there were Puritans who stayed, and then there were Puritans who separated. Some separated because they thought the system was broken, and they're just called separatists. All those who separated are called separatists. Those who believed in an independent form of church government were called independent separatists. But there are many godly men who stayed, and for whatever reason, they stayed in the church. They tried to reform it. They hoped for reform. And some of these men left wonderful works that can benefit us today. So here it is, the Christian in complete armor. It is a masterpiece. It's his magnum opus. Really the only thing I really know by Gurnall. I don't know of really any other books. Gurnall becomes ordained. He's not ordained until the Restoration, until Charles II comes back. He submits to the Act of Uniformity. So it kind of goes along with the flow in, in many regards. The Puritans didn't think much of him after that because to submit to the act of uniformity meant that you would follow the, the common book of prayer and you basically watched all your friends get kicked out of the ministry because they wouldn't. This causes reputation to suffer. 
And somebody even put out a pamphlet, The Covenant Renouncers, Desperate Apostates. And it was written in 1665 that criticized him. So because he stayed, people didn't like that. And you're going to hear maybe over the next few weeks where these anonymous booklets show up. And they often will have someone's name in there. And it'll, it'll denounce that person. But the author is unknown. He writes this Christian in complete armor as a large and influential commentary. And it's just on 10, passage, 10 verses. One passage, 10 verses. The armor of God in Ephesians 6. And I've preached through this a couple of times, the armor of God passage. Once when I was going through Ephesians and a couple of times even outside of that. And I always want to go through the Christian in complete armor, all of it. The problem, it's about 1,500 pages. And you'd have to, you know, maybe take a year to go through Ephesians at that rate. So I've only read portions of it, but it is wonderful. Those who have read it say that it's very beneficial just from what I've read. It's very helpful. I've quoted it often in that series that I did on the armor of God. He put it in three parts, 1655, 1658, 1662. He published those three. You can get it in three parts today, or you can get it in one big. The problem with one big book is the font's going to be tiny, but it's cheaper and doesn't take up as much shelf space. Since that time, it has been reprinted many times and translated into several languages. This is one of those classics of the Puritan literature. We talked about Pilgrim's Progress. We talked about The Saint's Everlasting Rest by Richard Baxter. Well, this is probably the next one in line here. Been in print since it it first came out. Uh, This work by Grenau has received very high marks. J.C. Ryle loves it. Charles Spurgeon talked highly of it. John Newton declared, If I might read only one book beside the Bible... I would choose the Christian in complete armor. That's saying a lot from from J.C. Ryle. All right, Matthew Henry. Who's heard of Matthew Henry? He's he's up there with with John Bunyan as far as fame. He's a little bit later. Some would say technically he's outside of the Puritan era. I think he's born and ministers early enough that he would be included. His His father, Philip, certainly was. Philip Henry had been one of the men ejected from his ministry and the great ejection. And so he was a Puritan. He grew up a Puritan. There are some biographies on Matthew Henry that are great. There's even a documentary that came out a few years ago. And he refused to submit to that act of uniformity. He felt like that it was too restrictive what the Anglican Church wanted to do. The Church of England wanted to have you follow a very structured method of worship. Say these prayers word for word. Sing these songs. Have these readings. And have this short little homily. So he felt like, and many Puritans did, that that was not reformed enough. They needed to continue to get rid of some of the Catholic things that were still hanging around in the Anglican church. Matthew Henry's formative years were spent in Christian community. That he says he lay under the cross of state harassment and persecution. So his father was being persecuted. Matthew Henry, he did get some training, but it was very hard. If you weren't willing to submit to the Anglican Church, the act of uniformity, you pretty much couldn't go to seminary, you couldn't go to college, you couldn't send your children there. You were banned, even through Spurgeon's Day in the 1800s. An independent or a Baptist could not go to get training in the seminaries of Oxford and Cambridge and and other places. But there were some Puritan schools, and, and Matthew Henry got to be trained by some of those men in London. He studied at what's called a nonconformist. That's another way of saying it. 
nonconformist, separatist. They wouldn't conform to the common book of prayer. So he studied at an academy there, and it was in a village near London. After 1662, he, uh, the nonconformists, like Henry, his father there, were barred from graduating from either of the ancient universities, as I said, Oxford, Cambridge. In June 1686, Matthew Henry began preaching. So he's still a pretty young man at this point. And he's in the neighborhood of his parents' farm when he does that. You didn't get hired for these large churches if you were a nonconformist, if you were a separatist. The following year, while on business in Chester, he speaks in this little village of Chester for a number of evenings in the house of a baker. His preaching was so well received, he was made a favorable impression that people asked for him to come there and be the pastor of their church, a Presbyterian congregation in that town. So he did pastor there for many years, many years, and he would often go to the other little villages around and preach. And then in 1712, he gets asked by a church in London to come and be their preacher, and he's there for the last couple of years of his life. It, it even, in the documentary I just watched a few months back that came out, it, it says that he had some problems with the church in Chester, or they had some problems with him. It doesn't specify what, but there was some stress there. And so then he takes the, the new job in London, and the people are really sad to see him go. And he wants to go back there, but he never gets back there before his death. So what is he famous for? He is famous for writing his commentary on the whole Bible. This was one of the first more full commentaries that discusses almost every verse. Every passage certainly is discussed, and most of the verses in that passage have good notes on. Here's what Spurgeon said about this commentary set. First among the mighty, for general usefulness, we are bound to mention the man whose name is a household word, Matthew Henry. He's the most pious and pithy, sound and sensible, suggestive and sober, terse and trustworthy. You will find him to be glittering with metaphors, rich in analogies, overflowing with illustrations, super abundant in reflections. So this is often one of the first commentaries even today that people might have outside of like a study Bible, MacArthur study Bible, for example. After that, folks will get Matthew Henry's commentary. And you can get it in a whole set or you can get it in, in one big bound book. The set is many volumes. This is a good commentary. It's not to say every comment he has is 100% on target. You always have to read commentaries with discernment. But it's very helpful, especially in the Old Testament, where he makes these connections that many times you don't see as you're reading. But then he points out this passage and this theology, and, and you say, wow, that was really helpful. And it's pithy. That's what Spurgeon is saying. A lot of commentaries just go on. The guy's just writing. You, you think he's making money by the word almost when he writes. Whereas Matthew Henry, that wasn't the case. He, he wrote this. Here's what's interesting. You read it, and so it's a little bit challenging because it's written 1700, you know, late 1600s. But it was written for families to go through in family worship. So it was written for the average man to sit down with his family. They would read a portion of Scripture, and then they would read and discuss the commentary section out of Matthew Henry's commentary. So I look at this quite a bit. Almost every week when I'm preaching a passage, I will look at Matthew Henry's commentary. He did die before he finished the New Testament, but he had enough sermons and writings out there that his friends took all of that and finished the New Testament out. And so it's very much in the same line as what he had done previously. 
But I still think I would agree with those who say the Old Testament portion is better even than I think he died in around Acts or Romans somewhere in that. He was composing it over time. All right. We come now to the Prince of Puritans. The Prince. Charles Spurgeon's the, the Prince of Preachers. John Owen is the Prince of Puritans. We have other men famous in church history like Calvin. You could say he's the Prince of Theologians. Or maybe that should go to Augustine. We can debate that another time. But here's John Owen. He wrote a lot of theology during the Puritan era. He is the theologian. He is the one that was probably the most prolific in his writing. He's trained at Oxford, though he eventually was forced to leave due to the persecutions under William Laud. So this was before the Civil War in England. He has to leave. Laud is persecuting anybody who doesn't hold to the Anglican church doctrine. He sided with Parliament, John Owen did, in the, in the Civil War. He even preaches at Parliament multiple times. He preaches on the day after Charles I is beheaded. He doesn't mention the beheading in his sermon, but he still preaches a convicting message. When these men would go to Parliament, they wouldn't preach the kind of messages we hear at the presidential inaugural address today. Not a feel-good message, but it was always preaching at the people in the room and preaching about their sins and how they need to look to Christ. He wanted to break from the Presbyterian form of government, Presbyterian, either being Scottish Presbyterianism or even the, the Anglican system is a type of, of Presbyterianism. He moved, uh, he wanted to move toward a congregational form, and that's where he ended up being the pastor of many churches. He was a fervent defender of Calvinism. He has books, The Display of Arminianism, which is really just the, the first few words of the title. It's a really long title, and it's great. I wish I'd put it on my slide. It's something like uh, the display of Arminianism, Arminianism against the false teachers of this movement. And, uh, it's great. So uh, his most famous work probably, as we think about theology, is the death of death and the death of Christ. Where he goes through the doctrine of limited atonement. And he makes some key arguments. One of those is the fact that if, if Christ did die for every single person who's ever lived, then if he suffered that wrath for them, then why do they then have to go to hell and suffer forever too? That's double jeopardy. We call that double jeopardy in our court system today. That's double punishment. So Christ suffers and the person has to suffer. It doesn't work, he says. Christ died for the elect. He paid the price. That's already been paid. So the elect are going to be saved and don't have to go through that punishment, of course. So a wonderful work. Even the recent J.I. Packer, last century, wrote a little introduction for the death of death as it was reprinted in the 1900s. That introduction has become as famous almost as the book itself. So it's worth reading. You can find the introduction and the, the book. All these books, pretty much, you can find them online. They're just hard to read online. I recommend getting a book in your hand, sitting down in a comfortable chair after you read your Bible and pray in the morning and just spend a few pages, a couple pages a day. You'd be amazed at how much you can get through these works just two, three, five pages a day. You don't have to sit there and read for four hours and immerse yourself. You know, some of y'all do. I mean, that's fine. That's good. We can we can respect that. Uh, but not all of us have five hours to sit down and read a Puritan word. But if you just did devotional time with the Puritans after your Bible reading, that would be very helpful for your sanctification. Here's a picture when he's younger. 
when he's older. He looks kind of stern there when he's older. He was kind of known in his younger days as a stylish guy. He, he would wear these leather Italian boots that go up to your mid-thigh as he taught on campus there at Oxford. And he, he, they were, you know, like the, the cowhide tan-looking leather and all kinds of these new hats that weren't in style at the day but were, were in style maybe in France. And so he, he was Mr. Stylish when he was younger. Cromwell, Oliver Cromwell, the Lord Protector, during the, the time that the Civil War has ended, Puritans reigned for roughly 20 years. The Golden Age, they call it, of Puritanism. He chooses John Owen to be the chaplain during a campaign. He goes to Ireland to put down further revolts there, and even the Irish Catholics are worked up, and the Angli- those who side with the, the Anglican Church and the king. So there's quite a bit of fighting. We've talked about that with Cromwell. Owen also accompanied Cromwell's armies in their campaigns against the Scots. He was a friend of Cromwell, but the relationship becomes somewhat strained when Owen opposed a move toward crowning Cromwell king. Even though Cromwell doesn't want to become king, I don't think he liked the fact that Owen was so much against it. Owen becomes the vice chancellor and dean at Oxford for eight years. So he's overseeing all the Christian education there and and the people who come in, all education back then was Christian. So even if you went for a degree in, in science or philosophy, it was a Christian education. Those who wanted to go to seminary would stay longer. After the Restoration, Owen was a leading nonconformist. He never was arrested, though. He never was put in prison, which is very interesting. Almost every Puritan was pressured in some way. Owen seems to not be because he's so well known in his own lifetime. Some of these other Puritans, their works won't be published till the end of their life, after they're, de- after they're dead. Uh, Owen was well-known, well-respected. And even Charles II respected John Owen. In 1663, he's invited to pastor a Congregationalist church in Boston, in America. And he declined. Um, this is after many other Puritans had made that transition over to America, started the city of Boston, and it was known as the Puritan capital of America for a while. During this time, he's frequently writing his theological works have earned him the title in some circles as the John Calvin of the English Puritans. Owen is not always easy to read. His theological works were written for an educated group of people at his time, especially pastors. And he would think, it's, people say he thinks in Latin. Latin has these long sentences with lots of commas. Lots of phrases all strung together in an argument. And some say that Owen does that with English. And sometimes you will read half a page, a page, and it's one, one two sentences, you know. His outlines, they're hard to follow because he's got points, sub-points, sub-sub-points, sub-sub-points. And, and sometimes you're like, wait a second, are we back out to a main point? Or are we still on a sub-point? And what happened to number three? Because now you're on number four. All preachers have that problem, but... As Owen's writing a theological work, I would think, what did he do that he missed that point? Maybe he got lost in his own outline. But it is helpful. The outline is helpful because he says, we're going to discuss indwelling sin. And then he says, you know, indwelling sin will affect the heart in so many ways. And so it's just great how he delineates that. And most Puritans do. He just does longer, more challenging sentences. Some people find a lot of help with Owen. Others get frustrated. But just like anything, when you're learning a new language, let's just take it to a new language. When you're learning a new language, do you enjoy it the first day? 
You enjoy it the first month. You enjoy it the first year. You have to get into it before you can be comfortable. Well, this is the same language. This isn't even Old English. We call it Old English. But it's not Old English. It's not even Middle English. It's Modern English. But it's just written 400 years ago. So it's the early period of what we call Modern English. That's not really the hard part. It's not the, the vocabulary. Most of the words that are hard for us, you, you can look up and their place names and events that happened and certain words they used. It's not even King James. King James is harder than John Owen. What's hard about Owen is his argumentation and the long sentences. We're not used to that. And in English, modern education, we've been taught to cut the sentence down, cut it all off. There shouldn't be too many commas, too many run-on sentences, too many ands. You got to cut it down and make it action-packed. You got to have action verbs. And so we're not able, it takes a lot of training to get used to these long arguments that flow down a page. But you get used to it. As you read two or three pages a day, you get used to it. He's an admirer and friend of Bunyan. Remember I quoted last week where Charles II asked John Owen, what do you see in that preacher John Bunyan? He's a tinker. And Owen says something like, I'd rather, I'd give all my learning to be a preacher and be able to preach like that tinker of London. It was partially through his efforts that Bunyan gets released from prison after spending 12 years there. Uh, John and his wife had 11 children. And this is one of those things you see over and over. And men of church history and, and Puritans especially, and their wives were affected as well. He had 11 children. Ten of them died in infancy. So he saw 10 children die in infancy. As he's writing, as he's preaching, that's going to come out in, in there. And you're going to see his hope and his, his love for the Lord even more. One daughter survives to adulthood. She married and shortly thereafter died of consumption. So he had 11 kids. He saw them all die in his lifetime. He dies in 1683 after more years of intense writing. Many of his works are still in print today. Many of them. His last words were, he heard the glory of Christ, a book that's still in print today. The glory of Christ was the last work published as he was alive. There are others that will get published after he dies. When he hears about it, he says, I'm glad to hear it. But oh, brother Payne, this is the, the man's last name who was his publisher. The long wished for day is come at last, in which I shall see the glory in another manner than I have ever done or was capable of doing in this world. So here's the glory of Christ that he's been writing on. And now he says, I'm about to die. I'm on my deathbed. I'm about to see the glory in another way than I've seen it in this life. He says, I'm going to him whom my soul hath loved, or rather hath loved me with an everlasting love, which is the whole ground of all my consolation. The passage, he's talking about the passage going into the next world. It's painful. It's very irksome. It's wearisome. He's sick. Through strong pain of various sorts, which are all issued and an intermitting fever. All things were provided to carry me to London today, attending to the advice of my physician. But we were all dis disappointed by my utter disability to understand the journey. He couldn't tolerate this journey, that his doctor told him to go to London and get care. I'm leaving the ship of the church in a storm. There's persecution. These pastors have been ejected from their churches. The Puritan movement is stressed and pressured from all sides. And I love that phrase, the ship of the church in a storm. But while the great pilot 
is, is in it, the loss of a poor under rower will be inconsiderable. So I'm like a rower on the ship. That's all I am. And yes, I can go and the Lord will replace me with someone else. Live and pray and hope and wait patiently and do not despair. The promise stands invincible that he will never leave thee nor forsake thee. So that's his last words. Great words. Some of the spellings there, hath and, and do and things like that, they're different. Most of the modern reprints and even the 1800 reprints fix, we'll, we'll call it correct some of that up to our modern standard. Some famous quotes here. Believers would mar the whole beauty of the gospel if they were left to themselves to bring out all the evil that is in their hearts. Um, this one kind of really makes some charismatics mad. He said, if private revelations agree with scriptures, they are needless. And if they disagree, they are false. So what he's saying there, if you have a private revelation from the Lord, if it agrees with Scripture, then it's not needed because we have the Scriptures. If it disagrees, then it's false. And I think that's good logic that he's, that he's pointing out there. Uh, a minister may fill his pews, his communion role, the mouths of the public, but what that minister is on his knees and secret before God Almighty, that he is and no more. So it doesn't matter how popular a pastor is, certain churches, it's who this man is when you're not there with him. Who is he before God? That really makes a difference. Uh, this is from his Mortification of Sin. This is probably his most famous book today. Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. So the book Mortification of Sin, which you, if you never read on, that's where you should start. It was written to teenagers that came to Oxford, 19, 18-year-olds, 17-year-olds, 16-year-olds. Now we struggle to read it as full-grown adults with educations today because it is a little more challenging. But this was his easiest work at that time and still today of the theological works. And it's all about killing your sin. It's all about living a godly life and denying yourself and, and killing your sin, figuratively speaking. And he takes this passage out of Romans 8. And he, he makes this great quote, kill your sin, be killing it. Be constantly killing your sin because if you're not, there's no neutral, it's going to be killing you. It's going to be affecting you. If you want to get his whole works, he has 16 volumes there. He's got theological works as one third of it. Not, not numerically, but it's divided into three parts. Theological, sermons, and practical. And so this is really just for the nerds in the room. So don't go buy this until you've read some Owen and really like him because this is an expensive set. But Banner of Truth puts a lot of these out still today. And if, you really, if you're really a, a, a nerd, if you really love John Owen, then you can even get his Hebrews commentary and add seven more to the set. And it'll look beautiful on your shelf, but you've got to use it. You've got to read it. And... Uh, I have this, uh, I really, I haven't been through the Hebrews. It's, again, these guys wrote so much. Look at the Hebrews. A pastor preaching through Hebrews can't keep up. It's like Martin Lloyd-Jones. You just It's hard for me to keep up with Martin Lloyd-Jones in Romans because he'll do 10 sermons on one passage that I'm preaching on this next Sunday, you know. And I got to hurry up and read all of that plus everything else. But Owen has some great work there. A little bit more usable, practical approachable, mortification of sin. That's where you should start. Then after that, he has a book on indwelling sin in believers. 
And so these, again, are these little Puritan paperbacks, 200 pages or less. And they're great. Pick these up. Start with something. Communion with God, that's out of print right now. But a lot of these will go out of print and they'll, they'll bring them back as soon as they make another book run at the printer. Communion with God, we have that one on, on back order for some time here at our church bookstore. The Holy Spirit. Owen was known for his writing. Communion with God and the Holy Spirit are some of the most rich theological works. He talks in communion with God, how we approach God, how we have time with God, how we should think about our Trinitarian God. And in the Holy Spirit, even in Owen's day, there's a lot of bad teaching on the Holy Spirit. So he writes this book. And then, of course, I've already mentioned the glory of Christ. All right, so Owen's one of the, uh, the giants of the Puritans. It's a bridge so that it's easy to read. It's a bridge so that it's easy to read, easier to read. All the Puritan paperbacks, I'm pretty sure, have some abridgment, but it's not typically a lot. It just depends. I think the goal there was to make it easier for modern readers because it really is that important of a work. I've read Mortification of Sin, but I don't think I read that exact copy, so I couldn't tell you. I'm sure it's out there somewhere, a comparison of what they took out. Usually it's a very light abridgment, and it'll say in the introduction of these books, we changed the spelling to update to modern spelling. We took out some of the, the verb tenses that end in TH, and they might even say we reduced some of the quotes or sections or translated the Latin so you don't have to look it up, put it in the Google Translate or the Greek, which sometimes Google Translate's not right. But it's, it's usually close enough if you're... Don't put a Bible verse from Greek in the Google Translate, okay? That would be dangerous. You can try it, but it, you can't follow every word that it translates. Something like this would be easier and not as important. William Perkins. William Perkins was one of the early Puritans. There was William Ames, which we haven't talked about and, and won't, but, and then William Perkins, 1558 to, to 1602. He's powerfully converted as a student at Cambridge. This is right after the time of the English Reformation. He, Elizabeth I is reigning. He, he gives up the study of mathematics and he begins to study theology. He also was in black magic in the occult. So even though England was a Christian nation from the time of Alfred the Great and the early, I think it was 600s, 500s, up until modern times, there was still a lot of black magic from the Middle Ages. A lot of, even Christ, Christians, cultural Christians, would practice these magical things to bless them in life. So he gives all that up, the occult that he was following. His training was focused on practical application rather than speculative theory. And that enables him to become a popular preacher and theologian. He's big on application. And even in this book here, the, the famous book that he wrote, The Art of Prophesying. This is not the way we use it today. Before the Pentecostal started in 1901, prophesying was seen as preaching. Because the prophets in the Old Testament, they did two things. They preached the word that had already been written. And they would tell people, you're disobeying the law. You're disobeying God's law. You're going to be judged. Go back to the law and read the law. Obey it. Do what God says. That's one thing the prophets said. So you read Jeremiah, you read Isaiah, you'll see that. But the other thing they did was they proclaim what was to come. And this is what we think of as prophecy today. But back in the Puritan era, they said, yeah, we prophesy every time we speak the word of God in the preaching of his word. And even up until modern times, you would hear men, John MacArthur would say, we, we prophesy in our preaching and that we preach the word. 
since the Strange Fire conference, that, that language has been changed, and now people are a little bit more careful when using that. But even recently, I think it was at the Ligonier conference a couple of weeks ago, Steve Lawson was asked, is prophecy going on today? And he says, well, it depends on what you're talking about. He says, if, it, if you're talking about preaching of the word, then he said, I would agree. But if you're talking about God giving new revelation outside of his word, he said, I would disagree. So he writes The Art of Prophesying. And one of the things he has is this layout. And I think Mark Devers put it in a chart form that I have. And it's like 12 or 10 ways to apply the message to different hearers. So you've got the, the unconverted person who thinks they're a Christian. Then you've got the, the unconverted person who doesn't even care about God. He's an atheist. And then you've got the unconverted person who is a child. And then you've got the believer who's suffering and needs compassion and encouragement. And then you've got the believer who's being stubborn and rebellious. And then you've got the believer who's just apathetic and not doing anything. And so he goes through all these people that you have to apply to the, to the sermon. And it's very, I've, I've looked at it and tried to do that in a sermon. It's hard to hit all those categories. I think he, if he was trying to do that every time, most people say today he, he was not trying to do that every single sermon. But in general, as he went along through his preaching, he becomes the preacher at Great St. Andrew's Parish Church in Cambridge. And he's very influential there. He dies of kidney stones, 1602. So he trained a lot of that second generation Puritans that we've been looking at so far. All right, we come now to some Scottish men, Samuel Rutherford. Samuel Rutherford. I think in the Puritan documentary, there's a nice little section on Rutherford. I don't know if it's a special video when you buy this set or it's part of the main two-hour documentary. Very interesting. And in his early life, we don't know much. There, there was something that went on in his early life with a young woman and not much is said about it, but that, that pretty much leads to his conversion. Or maybe it's right after he saved, I don't recall. He becomes a professor in Edinburgh. He left his, his teaching assignment there in 1625 under pressure because he wouldn't conform. Even though you're in Scotland, guess who ru rules and reigns over Scotland? The King of England. The King of England. So Charles I wants to make these things law in Scotland. The, the Scottish really don't put up with it. And so they, they say no. And, and Samuel Rutherford has to leave. He can no longer teach there at the university. In 1627, he becomes a pastor of a rural parish way out in the middle of nowhere called Anworth, where there was no large village near the church. There's not even a village. It's just farmers and little houses here and there. Yet Rutherford ministered to the people with visitation and teaching. So he would walk and go see them and teach them in their homes. And of course, they would come and pack this little church on Sundays. At Anworth, his wife suffered illness. Eventually, she died. The two children they had died. These experiences allowed him to minister and comfort the people. His preaching, though, really stands out. His church was very small. I don't know. I've looked at the building and tried to figure out how many could fit. Not more than 100, probably around 50. His audience includes people from distant areas, though, who would come through and hear him preach. His ministry resulted in the Church of England giving him problems constantly. And he was persecuted. He's, he's out in the boondocks of Scotland. And they're still coming after him. He writes a book. I won't pronounce it there in Latin for you. And he defended the doctrines of grace in 1636. That led to even more issues. Because one of the ways they knew you were a Puritan in this, this era at this time. Is if you were a Calvinist. If you're in the Anglican church. But they ask you questions about election and predestination. And you agree with those views. 
they're going to get you as a Calvinist and kick you out. This is under William Laud in the early 1600s. Uh, he's ordered to six months solitary confinement at Aberdeen in Scotland, where he wrote many of his famous letters that would bless the church worldwide. After his release, he returns to Anworth, participated in the General Assembly, and the Presbyterianism is restored to Scotland. So one of the things that happens under the English Parliament rule is they give Scotland some freedom to set up their own church. Uh, he was one of five Scots during the Westminster Assembly. So it wasn't just English. There were also Scottish folks there, men. And he had a major influence on the Shorter Catechism. In legal circles today, and I heard it's still read, or used to be in law schools. I think law schools are changing quite a bit these days. The Lex Rex, or the Law the King. And he argued for limited government and limited kingship. So a lot of kings did not like that work, the Lex Rex. Uh, inside of, of Christianity, he's more famous for his letters. So there's the church there. Like many old churches in Scotland and England, you get to church by walking past the graves of your ancestors. And uh, that's a good reminder. And some of them would even have on there in Latin, remember death, remember death, remember you're going to die. So you're coming into church and there's grandpa's grave and grandma's grave and my in-laws are over here and you're thinking of that. That's not the main reason they did it. They buried people on the church grounds and they just over time found tombs wherever they could put them. But that would be an interesting reminder. The church has pretty much fallen into shambles. It was always in the middle of nowhere. So on a hillside nearby, they built a monument later on just saying this is the area that Rutherford ministered. It's called Rutherford's Monument. The letters of Samuel Rutherford are his best work. In fact, they're his main work that Christians read. You can get the full set there in book form, hardback. They're very sweet. They're very comforting. As he's in house arrest for six months, all of these people who had been part of his church, who had passed through and gotten to know him, would write him letters. Women, older women, younger women, men, they would write letters. What do I do about this? And My mom just died and I'm having a hard time. So he would write back to them. These letters were eventually collected and put, put into book form. The Puritan paperbacks version picks some of the best letters and puts them in there. And then you can get this nice little leather bound set where they take some of his letters. It can't be that many because it's a very small book. It's called The Loveliness of Christ. It's all about loving Christ and how lovely he is. And it sounds, you know, to, to a manly man today, the loveliness of Christ just doesn't sound that manly. But you pick this up men and women, and it's a wonderful little read. I remember reading it in seminary, not thinking it would be much, but it just come out, so i got to sample this, and it was wonderful. Very encouraging. Put it beside your bedside table. Read it before you go to sleep. Eight on Christ. Richard Sibbs, we've already mentioned him. Goodwin stepped down and let Sibbs come in to be the pastor there. Sibbs is a little bit older than some of these other guys. As a child, he loved books. His father... Paul Sibbs was a hardworking wheelwright. And according to a guy, Zachary Caitlin, contemporary of, his, of Sibbs, he said that he, his father was a good, sound-hearted Christian, but became irritated with his son's interest in books. You know, you're too interested in books, and you shouldn't be doing that. You need to learn uh, an apprentice to do the work of your father here, the, the wheelwright, uh, making wheels for wagons and such. In 1603, 
He's uh, converted under the preaching of Paul Baines, whom Sibs called his father in the gospel. Baines re- remembered most for his commentary on Ephesians, which I've looked at when I was preaching through Ephesians. Baines came after William Perkins, who we just covered at Cambridge. So you see a line of Puritans. One man trains up another who trains up another who trains up another. And we'll see that. So we have Perkins that we just looked at who trained Baines, who influenced and Sibs is converted under his preaching. And we're going to see after Sibs, it's going to keep going to some other men that we've heard of. John Cotton being one of those, the famous Puritan of America, the one who goes to America and writes all this great theological work. John Cotton is converted under Sibs' preaching. Hugh Peters, also another famous Puritan that we haven't put in these slides, is converted. During these years at Holy Trinity Cambridge, Sibs helped turn Thomas Goodwin away from Arminianism. That great man Goodwin that we just looked at, he starts out as an Arminian, as we all do, and Sibs helps turn him away from that. He moved another man, John Preston, from witty preaching to plain spiritual preaching. Sibs is the plain preacher of his day. In 1617, he's a lecturer for Gray's Inn, the largest of the four great inns of court there in London, which still remains as one of the most important centers in England for study and practice of law. If you read Charles Dickens, he's always got something about Gray's Inn and the lawyers there and how interesting of a place that was even in the 1800s. Well, in the 1600s, they would have men come and preach there for the men training for law, for the law school. And so he goes there to lecture there. He keeps also his position at Cambridge as well. Here's some of his titles. The Heavenly Doctor, due to his godly preaching and heavenly manner of life. And I like this one, The Sweet Dropper, because he's consistently encouraging people in his sermons. These little nuggets of, of sweetness that he's dropping along the way. So The Heavenly Doctor, Sweet Dropper. He's a gentle man. He'd stayed out of the controversies in the church. He was a Puritan, but he didn't ever want to separate or cause any problems. He said, factions breed factions. His battles with Archbishop Laud, Roman Catholics, and Arminians were exceptions. So he did have some, we'll call them scholarly debates and arguments, but he wasn't really persecuted because he stayed within the church. He followed the common book of prayer. He even had interesting outfits, you know, this is... We look at this and we just assume that's common for the day. Well, nobody else in any of the pictures I've shown you wore this little thing on his head. And uh, he is a little bit earlier, so they still had the ruffle, the accordion-like thing around their neck, which had to be so uncomfortable. He remained close friends with many pastors and leaders who wanted a more radical reform than he did. So while he didn't join them, while he didn't join with their separation and nonconformity, he remained friends with them and was respected by them. His easiest work, and probably the one you should read if you haven't already, The Bruised Reed. He takes one passage out of Matthew and that Jesus spoke and opens it up. We read this as a church group. The men and women did after we finished a Bible study a few years ago. We, we did this for a few weeks in the summer. The Bruised Reed, really good. The, the latter section, not as good. But the first 80%, I think, is, is really good. And then he goes off on sort of this eschatology that's a little different. Josiah's Reformation. My daughter's reading this right now, another Puritan paperback. And really good looking at Josiah in the Old Testament and talking about how he reformed Israel and applying that to believers today. A heavenly conference between Christ and Mary. This isn't Mary, the mother of Jesus. This is Mary Magdalene. And this 
conversation that they had whenever Mary sees Jesus after his resurrection. And so I'll mention that briefly in the sermon today. But he draws out a whole book from that. And all the Puritans were great at applying this teaching everywhere in a person's life. And then the glorious feast of the gospel. So there's four Puritan paperbacks. He's getting up there with Bunyan on his readability. So that's why they're publishing more of those in the Puritan paperback series. All right, coming near the end here, Thomas Watson. Thomas Watson, he's one of my favorites. Owen's my favorite. I like Goodwin. Uh, I like a lot of these guys. But Watson is the easiest Puritan to read. At Cambridge, Watson exhibited a great understanding of the English language, as well as Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. From his sermons, it can be seen that he was a very learned man. He's got all these illustrations. That's why it's easy to read. They're not long sentences and long arguments, and there's a lot of illustrations. You can see that he's talking about history examples, botany, medicine, physics, classics, and even more. In 1646, he commenced a 16-year pastorate at St. Stephen's Walbrook in the heart of London. He's in prison in 1651 by Cromwell's army because it's thought that he was participating in a plot to get Charles II back into England and become king. And they just chopped the head off of his father. They don't want him back. Christopher Love is another Puritan. Christopher Love is hanged as well as another man. I don't recall his name. But Thomas Watson is, is not. He gets to go free. He's released in 1652. He's reinstated as the vicar of that church that he was at. His fame and popularity increases. He's ejected out of the pulpit in 62 because he wouldn't follow the act of uniformity. He joins 2,000 other ministers who left their churches. He's faced with fines, but he continues to preach. He's one of these men who would preach in homes, preach in fields, wherever people would gather, he would keep preaching. After 72, they're able to hold worship services again because of that declaration of indulgence. He ministers at Crosby Hall. He's joined by Stephen Charnock, whom we've already spoken of. His health started to decline. He retired. He's buried in 1686. All of these works that he wrote pretty much have been reprinted. He's known as one of the most readable and understandable of all the Puritan writers. Very readable. And my favorite is the one on the right, The Art of Divine Contentment. That was the book of the month here, oh, many years ago now, when we first started the bookstore and recommended the book of the month, The Art of Divine Contentment. And he just, if you're discontent at all, and you start that book, by the time you're done, just finish it. By the time you're done, you will not be discontent. You will be content with what the Lord has given you. Also, a body of divinity. I know Steve Lawson, I think John MacArthur cite this as one of their most influential books. It's not MacArthur, it's someone else. But I know Steve Lawson found this in seminary, and it pretty much led him to Calvinism. And the Doctrine of Repentance, a little book that will help you understand repentance better. All right, last slide. These are some general books that I recommend that you pick up on growing in godliness from the Puritans. At the beginning of the class on Puritans here, I said these are the history books. Then I went through each one that I would recommend. These are just ones that will help you grow in godliness. I just finished reading Thriving in Grace, 12 Ways the Puritans Fuel Spiritual Growth, a great little book that just came out last year. Quest for Godliness is a classic by J.I. Packer. And if you want one on prayer, Taking Hold of God, Reformed and Puritan Perspectives on Prayer. If you have questions, let me know afterwards because I'm already over time. Lord, we do come before you today. Just We want to live like these men did. We want to be faithful even amongst persecution, even when people don't like what it is that we are teaching and preaching. 
Give us strength. Give us endurance. Let us look back to the past and be encouraged. We pray that you would do this for the glory of your name, the glory of your son's name. Amen.